Good evening. My name is Wesley Brown, and it's uh, an honor for me to introduce this discussion and reading with Kara Petze, Willie Cozy-Seely. This evening is a particularly special evening for me uh, because it's uh, been a while since um, I've seen Willie, and we were both part of a community of artists and writers uh, living in New York who were very supportive of one another. And uh, it's very good to see him uh, again after a period of this period of time. It's also a special occasion, I feel, because it is a rare occurrence in this city, if not the country, when a black South African writer has access to a public forum such as this. In the same way that fundamental change, the fundamental change that must come in South Africa will be made by the black majority, the narrators of that change must of necessity be writers who come from that majority. Willie Kozaseli is such a narrator, not in the narrow sense of someone speaking from a great distance, but as someone whose voice becomes what he is talking about. Since his exile from South Africa in 1961, Willie has given his voice and body to the struggle for empowerment of Afro-Americans in this country and is now deputy head of the Department of Arts and Culture of the African National Congress of South Africa. For Willie, the African diaspora is indivisible. In his words, distances separate bodies, not people. He has also written eloquently about those actions which enrich and betray us. In this important sense, he is a poet we always need but don't always want. He gives aid but not comfort, offering no sanctuaries except, as he says, in purposeful action. As the title of one of his books of poems announces, the present is a dangerous place to live. And we couldn't be in better hands as we travel over the minefield connecting South Africa and the United States. Joining Willie in the discussion part of the program are three distinguished poets. Jane Cortez to the far left, author of several volumes of poetry and recordings of her work, her most recent, recent collection, Coagulations. Raymond Patterson, to my immediate left, teaches at City College of the City University of New York and is the author of two collections of poetry, 26 Ways of Looking at a Black Man and Elemental Blues. Wilfred Carty is a distinguished professor of Africana and Urban Studies at the City University of New York, and his latest collection of poetry is Children of Lala Bela. So without any further delay, I'm gonna begin the conversation with uh, Willie Cozy Seely, and Willie will begin the program.
Good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm almost a little bit embarrassed because uh, some of the things that have been said, I think uh, I'm not too certain whether I deserve or not. But at the same time also, I would say I'm not totally a foreigner to New York or the United States. And that I'm also very flattered that I'm sharing a platform with people uh, that there are even some bleeding memories in connection with for more than 20 years. There also in the audience, perhaps in a cowardly manner, I will not mention any names, but there are a number of people that I have known for a long, long time who also made those distances referred to earlier irrelevant simply just geographical fact. But in terms of people, irrelevant. Uh, earlier, a few of us were talking in the deck there and trying to recount the 60s in this country. And that uh, one of the most frustrating things is that you talk to some people who grew up in the past 20 years or so and they do not know a damn thing about what was happening in the United States of America in the past 20 years that they don't know who Martin Luther King was. They don't know who Malcolm X was. They don't know who Rep Brown was. They don't know. I could go on and on, right? Uh, I remember also very sharply that with the Martin Luther King March, for instance, from Selma to Montgomery, I was in Alabama. And 
came back to New York, A.B. Spellman, who then worked for WBAI, had an interview with me. There were things I'd seen that I talked about. People called into the station. People wrote letters, hostile, talking about exaggerating what I had simply reported as fact. You know that if this is a jar in front of me, this is a jar in front of me. And then someone tells me I'm exaggerating that fact. Okay. In terms of people sitting here with me, <coughs> Wilfred Carty, for instance, one time, which I could not understand, when I could no longer stomach New York City. I asked Kati, how do you manage to write and keep out the violent inhumanity of this place out of your writing? How do you manage to even vaguely remain lyrical. Right? And Kati pointed out to me, you know, when I go into my apartment, when I lock the door, I cut out New York. Right? That, in other words, it would have been impossible to account for a coal train, Coleman Hawkins, a Nina Simone, uh, and so on and so on. We could go on and on, right? And that. At that time, all kinds of things, even in New York, were happening. The artist community, cultural workers, so to speak, had a kind of collective, supportive role which sustained a lot of us, even much more than we realized at the time. There was an African woman in the village, Rashida, frustrated, <laughs> you know, but hanging on in that and relating 
to what was happening here. And that it was our responsibility to give her the necessary support. Not in a condescending manner, no. There were young writers, Wes Brown, frustrated, couldn't deal with the cultural nationalist nonsense, couldn't, wanted to relate as a writer internationally to what was happening to us internationally that the young brother needed support. There was Kusitili who working out of a Columbia University apartment <laughs> on 111th Street feeling at times as soon as walking out of there, the next American that makes one wrong move will get it, <laughs> right? Okay. None of that accidental or incidental. And you are burning in this and you know that without America, without official America, you would not even have to be here. You would have been in Johannesburg where you prefer to be, right? Okay. Then, at the same time, the tentacles are beginning to touch around this planet internationally. And that at some point, for instance, about 10 years ago, I was in New York. I asked for a meeting with New York-based black artists, writers, musicians, this, that, and the next cultural workers, generally. And I tried to make an appeal in connection with Angola. Serious blunders, certain serious blunders were made, particularly by certain segments of the black community in this country that there was support for Savimbi 
and you need that because they were super black because that was what you identified with and this, that, and the next. Where? The level of misinformation was that those who did that did not even know the closeness with which UNITA worked with Portugal, with South Africa, and with America, the official America I'm talking about. Right? Okay. And at that meeting, I remember Wilfred Carty at some point saying, okay, Kuitile called us together here for support for the African National Congress. Before we got here, we knew who he is. Right? If we are going to come up with any big notion about supporting our brothers and sisters in South Africa, that we are not talking about supporting the ANC, then we are talking nonsense. Right? Okay. But I don't want to deal with that <laughs> because that is in the past. Uh, what I would want to talk about very briefly, maybe, is why I am here now. The reason is very simple. That over the years, a lot of garbage has come to this country pretending or claiming to represent some aspect of life in South Africa expressed, of course, artistically. Quotes. Artistic. And that we say a lot of that is garbage. That the people inside South Africa, even two weeks before I came here, 
sent two young cultural workers from inside the country to tell me, in your going abroad now, make it very clear we have had enough of that nonsense. We do not want any of these clowns going abroad with even the help of the enemy, claiming or pretending to represent or articulate any aspect of our lives. That we want the Amandla Cultural Ensemble to tour the United States of America because Amandla can represent us. Amandla has traveled internationally even in North America. They've been here. I mean, okay, across the border. They've been in Canada, right? <laughs> but they have not been in the United States. And that is not accidental. That is not because the African National Congress says there should be no cultural exchange with the people of the United States, right? It has simply been that in terms of the way deals go down, that the United States would prefer the distortions that are continually being brought here. Right? So, in the final analysis, I'm here to try to mobilize your support materially and in whatever other way to see to it that Amanda comes here next fall, that you see the other South Africa competently, artistically expressed, right? That if, uh, I would not claim, I have never claimed that the only 
people who could produce any authentic South African artistic expression would necessarily have to be members of the African National Congress. No, that would be a fallacy. There are millions of people inside South Africa who are not members of the ANC and are not about to be. Right? Okay. But at the same time, I would pose a question I posed to a fellow South African writer maybe about 10, 15 years ago. We meet in London, and my brother asks me, how can people like you and Alex Laguma, the lead, be in the movement in the ANC and still manage to produce literary work. And I say to my brother, I, am, I would be very, very interested if you could explain to me how any South African writer who is serious, who wants to deal with South African life, be outside of the ANC and claim or make a pretense at any level to be dealing with that life. That it seemed that with some of my colleagues, they think if you are in the movement, then some crazy clown with a rifle on your head dictates lines to you. You are going to write a poem on Winnie Mandela today. <laughs> and this is what you are going to say. Or this, this, this. Right? That, that kind of nonsense, no. Thank you. No. Okay. I don't want to take too much of a risk of boring you, so I will not talk too much. Instead, I think I propose to read a poem or two and leave it to my bosses up here to decide what's happening. <laughs> Uh, okay.
Uh, again, the excuse me a little bit while I'm trying to look. Okay. First poem I like to read. It's called Logistics. And incidentally, this was written in Alabama. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, I have to get my reading. You want me to read it for you? <laughs> you want me to read it for you? Really? <laughs> 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 Uh, we're not getting any younger, unfortunately. You aren't? <laughs> Logistics. I saw her try to rise to sun against pillars of ice slippery as past. I saw her try to rise to song. Woman child, fragrance of rose and divine rage, rooted in spirit, fertile as my land, now butchered by the devil's appetite. They whose eye is glued to the devil's rectum, how can they know there is more open between us than your thighs? Night, like the color of our desire, come bind us. But there are no distances here. Even in the silence, of a hotel room whose fiction is too vicious for our dreams. Night binds us like a wolf. Even against the hate and the hurt of the vampire's teeth deep to our marrow, I taste the bone of our peppers in the salt of your nipple. Since the real man comes from his heart, I rise to offer you mine where night binds us like a wolf. Thank you. Uh, in a lot of instances, we argue sometimes, and it might sound terribly idealistic, that 
Uh, how you sound is who you are. Very definitive. That even from day to day, even the kind of music you listen to defines you much, much more sharply than you might suspect. Okay. After the Selma Montgomery match, I came to New York. Nina Simone was performing at the village gate. She had also just come from Alabama. And for the first time at the live performance, Nina Simone sang Mississippi Goddamn. This poem is called Ivory Masks in Orbit for Nina Simone. These new night babies flying on ivory wings dig the beginning. Do you love me, son, God damn? I saw the sunrise at the midnight hour. 300 sounds burn on the ivory, bespeaking a new kind of air, massive as future memory. This, like a finger, moves over 300 Mississippis rock the village gate with future memory of this moment's wreck. The sun smiles of new dawn mating with this burning moment for the memory can no longer kneel in. Do you love me? 88 times over, lovely ebony lady swims in this cloud like the crocodile in the Limpopo midnight hour, even here speaking of love um, with future memory. Desire become memory. I know how you be tonight. Thank you, and I think I stopped my foolishness there. And I would say, like, I made mention of the fact 
people, like in the past 20 years, not even seeming to know what happened here. The even in the American everyday vocabulary today, that a term like kneel in may not associate anything directly with harsh reality in the recent past. Thank you. I've been living in New York City for 20 years now. And so in 1968, my second reading in New York City was with Willie. <laughs> Do you remember? In Queens yeah. College. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you spoke a little bit about your exile, exile in New York City or living in the United States. Could you say something about um, exile, uh, living in exile in Africa and uh, the effect that has on your life and your work. And we see many men who manage to produce works of literature. Um, is it just who's been selected or is it mostly men in exile? And from your experience, how does an African woman writer fare in exile? Okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Very. Very sharp, <laughs> and we cannot play games. Ah, <laughs> uh, in in a sense, when you belong to a collective, as I do the African National Congress. I think your frustrations, although they get very extremely heightened at times, because exile is brutal. Exile is ugly. Especially if it is not your personal choice. In other words, if you don't walk into exile like someone walks into a public toilet, right? Okay. That it is not easy for anyone. And it creates its tensions even in your work individually. You are not the first person to begin writing or commenting on society. You don't fool yourself with any illusion like that. 
you are simply, in terms of looking at your society and looking at the world internationally, there is a huge, huge band, orchestra on this stage, which is the world. You take your little soul, right? And that, whether you had been born or not, your little solo might not even have been missed by anyone because the song would go on anyway. You have to deal with that, to strip your little ego of whatever illusions like that. Number two, uh, the latter part of the question. Uh, I started, I start, let's see, by pointing out that there is a misconception internationally about South African writers in particular. That internationally, when you talk about South African writers, you are talking about Alex Laguma, you are talking about Dennis Brutus. You are talking about Mungani Serote, Kyorapete Kuifile, all of this. Who happen to write most of the time in English. And that, in terms of the realities of South Africa, the Kositiles, Lagumas, Serutis, and so on form an insignificant minority that the greater bulk of our literature is in African languages. The Shangani, in Zulu, in Sesotho, in Setswana, in Kosa, and so on, has been and will remain that way. can raise questions about national literatures in national languages because of the situation in Nigeria and in Kenya. In South Africa, people would laugh at you like a fool if you raise that question because it does not, it does not even apply vaguely. And my writing in English does not threaten anyone in the first place because the greater bulk of our literatures are in our languages. 
anyway. Right? So, my little ego there too has to be clipped. Okay. Then, there is a question of women writers. Particularly, let us say, women writers in exile, South African, black, particularly. Right? That, for some weird reason, which is not of our doing, it does not matter whether you are talking about New York or Moscow or Peking or Havana, Saigon, wherever. Which means it. That when you talk about South African writers, people readily think of men as if we do not have women writers. Right? Okay. So, some of us say this nonsense has gone on too far. You do not invite for instance, a quesiti. You invite a South African writer. The department decides who is going as a first step to correct that mess. Hold a minute, hold a minute. I think we're going to trade out to the audience just a minute. We're hold. not taking questions yet. Not as yet, not as yet. Hold it. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Hold it. We're going to dialogue up here a bit first, and then I know the questions are pressing on you hard, like, you know, but hold it a little. Just hold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's all right. Let them watch. Hold on, man. Raymond, you want to run the question? Oh, yes. Uh, let me say, this has uh, been a very moving experience for me, sitting here with uh, Willie. Um, I first encountered his poetry uh, back in 1971. And uh, we met briefly just after that. And then he left New York. I think we had a conversation for about three minutes. And the next thing I heard, he was uh, working at a college in the South. Um, and then I heard he had uh, left the South and had gone back to Africa to work. And uh, I admired that. I thought that here was a person who 
was an artist who felt a social commitment and was seeing that through. Um, he used the word earlier, um, cultural worker, cultural worker, and I like that term. Uh, in America, we like to think of ourselves as uh, painters or poets or writers or whatever, artists, but uh, cultural worker seems to uh, say something that uh, relates to the role that the artist plays in society, the very significant role that the artist plays. Uh, the poem Logistics uh, I was moved by, as uh, we all were, I, I believe. Uh, what touched me was a kind of harshness and tenderness that was combined in that poem. Harshness and tenderness. Uh, Willie also said that uh, how you sound is who you are. He said earlier, to how you sound is who you are. And I wanted to ask him, uh, what is that voice that he hears in the cultural workers in South Africa, Southern Africa today? What, what is that poetic voice? Uh, uh, can he sort of describe it for us? And uh, does that voice in any way sound like the voice he heard in the 60s and 70s in the South or or the North here in America? Uh, very difficult question, I'm sure you realize. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll try. As uh, in West Africa, my say small, small. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, it is, in a sense, maybe trying to say step thing. A simple question about what time is it? Right? That. This is the latter part of the 20th century. That, as it is now, as it has always been, you cannot choose who you are going to be born with. That your brother might be a rapist, murderer, whatever else, mercenary, assassin, but you had no choice. Can you say, because of that, that even biologically, 
that is not your brother. That would it be correct if I said Kamuzu Banda in Malawi is not my brother? The stubborn little unarguable fact is that Kamuzu Banda is my brother. But Kamusu Banda is no less dangerous to my life than P.W. Bota or Reagan. That is a fact. Then in that case, where am I on this planet? Right? Do I begin to make contact with people, even internationally, on the basis of blood or skin nationalism or on some other basis? Right? And for those who knew, who know anything about what was happening in this country in the 60s, I am not trying to say as an African, as a black South African. I am not trying to say I have to run around the world looking for a good white person, man or woman, to prove that my responses to reality are not racial. No. That is not my responsibility. Right? But then, when I run into people that I can identify with as fellow human beings on this planet who feel the weight of my life, the way I can feel theirs. And this is not an individual matter. Who share my sentiments, who share my achievements, I'm talking about this collectively, who share my frustrations, who share my blunders, who share my goals, and so on, and are prepared to put their life on the line the way I will put mine. Then, 
if brotherhood or sisterhood at that level can be translated into commitment, then that is my brother or sister. It does not matter whether they are from Mongolia, Uzbekistan, New Delhi, or North America, or wherever you can think of on this planet. That in some places, maybe not to the degree that you would want it. But in some places, at least at the social level, some of them has been achieved. If you go to Ulaanbaatar today, the capital of Mongolia, now, 1987, October, now, the latter part of the 20th century, the whole cross-section from the blackest to the blondest and blue-eyest among us here. If you were sitting like this in Ulaanbaatar, there is no one, not a single person who could make the biggest assumption that you are not Mongolia. Right? That is a reality that social aberrations like the Bottas, the Bandas, the Regans, the Thatchers, no matter how much they want to mislead us about that, it is a reality that cannot be questioned. I hope I answered oh, Quite well, quite well. Uri, I guess um, I started dreaming a while while you were talking. Um, because I haven't heard your that nasal voice of yours for such a long time, you've taken me back to many other times and taken me into a certain kind of space, which is a beautiful space, a space of sort of universal commitment you were sort of sketching for me a while ago. Before I go into my say something, I just want to address the audience. I know there are many pressing questions but the kind of format we have tried to set up is that Willie is the center of the attention. He is the spotlight. Our questions, I have 2,000 questions for him. I will only ask one. The audience will have their turn to question so that the gentleman who wants to ask his question, it's not that we don't think your question is pressing because it's a pressing subject. We just want to say that 
We're trying to, Willie is the center. We haven't seen him for a while. It's just good to have him share him with us. He is the center, so we're trying to do that. The sort of universal commitment you were speaking about a while ago, Willie, in terms of a humanistic negation of color, of region, of geography, but of a kind of universal commitment to struggle and to truth is what I think you've been always doing. And I just feel good to be here with Jane and you and Raymond and just everybody here. I just, it's a beautiful statement, a beautiful energy flow. I must allow myself to say that. It's good to see you. It's good to welcome you back. And I wouldn't say home, but to welcome you. It's just nice to have you with us again. How does I create, you say, in New York City? It's because sometimes I go to Africa and I go to the Caribbean and I travel out of here. But also that I'm here is, and relates to the question I want to ask you. You spoke of misinformation, disinformation, which many people from South Africa are bringing out to us. You also spoke of many of the new writers writing in indigenous languages, in Zulu or Shonga, whatever. Now how then can those who write in Zulu or speak their artistic creation in Zulu disinform the disinformation outside the larger world? You see, in this country here and in the rest of the world at this point of time, since there's a blackout of news or a whiteout of news in South Africa, we don't get stuff. We don't get news. The, 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 the um, television stations do not bring us news, not the radio stations. In other places where there are blackout of news, news comes out. Daring reporters do their little daring tricks and news will come out. But in South Africa, no. So how then those of you who write in indigenous languages, how will you inform us, if not in an international language, quote unquote? And the second question I want to ask kind of thing is, since the reality which you come from and which is there pricking your imagination is tragic, it's pathetic, it's, it's harsh, since that reality is there, how do you then not have your soul trampled on by that reality which shapes your voice at the same time? How can you dissociate, how can you create in a reality? You ask me how I create here in New York. I ask you how you create in South Africa or around there when that reality tramples your soul and at the same time stimulates your imagination. Do you create in the spontaneous voice of English or do you create in the other voice of the language? And how do you bring that out to us to share your voice with us to help us break that whole horror which is South Africa? Uh, okay. You can say right, but... <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll try. Yes. And I suspect my brother knows this man. 
an easy question. <laughs> but we'll try. Yes. Okay. Maybe I should stand from the last comment in terms of the that uh, it will seem to me when you look around the world that there is no writer there is no musician anywhere who think that there is a limitation to their language. That it is a Chinese writer very readily writes in Chinese. In Indian, in any of the Indian languages, French, in French, Russian, in Russian, an English writer, in English, and that, that issue finally becomes a task of translators. It's as simple as that. At one very harsh level. Then the other at the other level it's that when I write a point in English it is simply because with the educational system, with training, with part of the little petty bourgeois nonsense, so on, that English became part of those acquisitions. And that I do not have to try to prove a point by saying I am equally. No, no, well, it's not that. Yeah. Yet. I'm asking how do you disseminate the misinformation? How do you clear it up? Okay. If the writer's um, the writing. Mm, I'm coming to that. All right. Uh, <laughs> you see, we haven't fought for a long time. <laughs> you see, this is what is healthy about this that uh, we know each other well enough to even remember our fights <laughs> <laughs> from the past. So, there's no problem with that. And that, Is that? I suspect for a long time people like Kati, people like me, <laughs> West Brown, Jane, 
Okay, at least those people sitting here at one point or another were little needles here and there, even in the cultural world of the 60s. That there were certain things we could pose. I mean, like in New York, in the mid-60s, all these clowns talking about super blackness and how beautiful you were because you were black and this, that, and the next. But how many were willing in terms of that super black generation to go to the south when SNCC and the NAACP SCLAC were organizing, mobilizing. How many of us based in New York were prepared to go down there and deal with the monster head on? Right? Okay. That then, if I say, I am not accountable to such and such a big name, literary critic, whoever it might be, that I be accountable to that old man in rural Alabama in a place that does not even appear on the map who says to me when I ask him, what do you think about this nonviolent thing? And says to me, well, I believe in nonviolence, all right? No, but I know the only way to stay nonviolent in this man's country is to keep a gun in use. <laughs> right? That's who I'm accountable to. Not the literary critic. To hell with that. I'm sorry for the friend. Uh, but uh, now I go sidetracked. I forgot my this. It's nothing strange, really. It's all right. <laughs> Uh, but, oh, getting back to people in their languages, this, this, this. I said, it is the responsibility of the translators. For instance, right now, as we are talking, one of the most powerful novelists writing out of South Africa today that I would place at the same level that I would place an Alex Laguma writes in Setswana. That 
if I ever had time, I would very, very much want to translate Munyais into English because no one outside of Botswana, Lesotho, South Africa knows about Munyais and he is most decidedly one of the most capable novelists that South Africa has produced in this century. Right? But Mnyaisi is very dangerously fluent in English, in Africans, and so But that he decided no compromise He's writing in his language. And if it's going to be accessible to anyone, in Chinese, in French, in Russian, in English, then it is their responsibility, not his. When I want to read a French writer, who does not compromise in terms of his or her language. If I cannot read the French original, what do I do? I look for the nearest English translation, right? Even the Bible. Uh, okay, uh, uh, Fred, I just I want think to, we to the audience now. Yeah, right? this is not a question, this is a statement. Uh, Willie, would you say something, or say something about publishing in Southern Africa, maybe some of its promises or its problems? Uh, would you comment on that? Ray, yeah. you want to link us to the question of translation? Should, for instance, Penn sponsor the translation of some of these? What you're speaking about? Why not? Kind of Why thing. Not? If you see what I'm saying, that's a fact. Now, <laughs> that is very concrete and constructive thinking. Right? That, let us see. A very capable novelist like Nadine Guadima, for instance. Uh, because she writes in English, gets translated into French, into Russian, into Japanese, into you know, German, in, like that, like that. Because to write Into Zulu. with the <laughs> colonial thing, to write is to write English. If you don't write in English, you are not writing. Mnyaisi does not get translated. You know? Because Mnyaisi write in a non-language 
in fact, in what arrogantly they would say a dialect, a language that is much older, that is much more expressive than English is ever likely to be for the next maybe 500 centuries. <laughs> right? Okay. You get someone from Namibia. Uh, who cannot write in English or Africans or Dutch or German which covers the history of Namibia <laughs> who writes in Nama or some other language Namibia, who would never be known to the international public because he does not write in a language, he writes in a dialect. Right? And that we say, that nonsense is over with. Right? That. Uh, what is national, expressed nationally, uh, will be there. On the terms of that expression, culturally. That. When. A Calypsonian, let us see, comes to New York, any part of America. They do not have at any level to change their idiom. In other words, their language, their musical language to accommodate America. That if you meet me as who I am and we can get along that you are this and I'm this and we can and right now, we'll find leave. common humanity, we move from that. Right? Right. We're going to ask questions from the audience now. A few questions because you'd like to hear Willie um, read in Zulu or in <coughs> Norma or something later on <laughs> for us. <laughs> I will try to stay, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> or Jane or Raymond. 
So the, the misinformation that the audience will and get, will translate. I will translate. So, so this create the misinformation which the press will give on Willie's talk, and so on and so forth. And that's three or four questions from the audience. Everyone has questions. This is so beautiful. I. Well, just some questions. I know this gentleman there yeah, is trading a, on the bit there. The, the quest, there's a, someone had a question in the back earlier. You're, yes, you. Yeah. Are you ready? You can ask your question now. Okay, let's put it like this. That if I wanted to make a movie on Ronald Reagan or Bata, I do not have to ask them for permission. Right? If they don't like it, they can make their own. Or if they can organize to pick it, they can pick it. Uh, <clears throat> correctly, Winnie Mandela was not consulted. Uh, but then again, this was not an ANC project, in which case Winnie Mandela would have been consulted. This was Attenborough and his boys in London and Hollywood. Uh, Last night, 
I try someone tape the movie for me. I try to watch the movie. I couldn't. The even in terms of fact, the historical distortions, you know, and all kinds of stuff like that. And the way Mandela relates to Winnie in the South Africa of the 50s, that there is nothing even vaguely approaching reality about all of that nonsense. Okay. So, if they want to trip on that, and if you want to watch it, maybe to see the dangers involved in this, all the death. That if you try to avoid to see it, it would seem to me like if you were South African or Namibian, you are a very well-trained gorilla with that sense of vigilance and security. With all of your training, you decide you will never come in contact with the enemy because the enemy is too filthy. Then, why, where was the need for the training in the first place? Very concretely. Right? I mean, struggle is not a picnic. You are going to have some shit in your hands, which you don't want to be bothered with. But you will, if you are involved. So that's it. Um, in the back. Could I maybe just by way of information point out that in terms of uh, some of the people in there, right, out of any significant South African participation, John Machikiza, who is playing the part of Walter Sisulu, who also had a role in the Steve Biko film, took this 
a because he was not strong enough he was getting married he needed the money to set up a family and he took that right because of needing the money on the other hand Zeke's Mukai who lives here, who's in LA, who participated in the Steve Baker film, who was offered a part in the Mandela one, turned that down and his argument was that the Biko one was enough of a blunder. The first time is a mistake. The second time you are a damn fool, at least, if nothing else. Um, yes. Should I respond to that? That, I would say, my personal opinion about certain things, in the face of reality, become irrelevant. Right? That at any given moment, if we want to be serious, the age old struggles of man against man, man against nature, and so on, even if I were talking as a right, that those themes will remain with us for as long as there is humanity on this planet. What guides us? Right? What makes me know that I cannot trust Banda, Kamusu Banda, anymore 
การไอคันตรัสพีดับลิวบอร์ดไรวัดมิกซ์มีโน่เดตกาชาบุเทลิสิสมายเอนิมและเดอเอนิมีของมายพีพอลและเขาเป็นเหมือนกันเลยวัดมิกซ์มีอิดเอนติฟายเขามากที่สุดกับบอร์ดดังที่ผมสามารถอิดเอนติฟายเขามากที่สุดกับบอร์ดดังที่ผมสามารถอิดเอนติฟายเขามากที่สุดกับบอร์ดดังที่ผมสามารถอิดเอนติฟายเขามากRight, and that we are guided by reality. This is what is happening today. See, when I'm talking here, you go into an elementary school in Soweto near there, and our children. Not bothers children have to be subjected to nonsense. To, to try to learn, and then you get surprised at the results at the end of the year that the white kids over there have done better. On the exam, than those, I am saying, it is that concrete reality that should guide our understanding of these things. I'm sorry, brother. I didn't hear you. Did everyone hear the question? The question was, uh, he questioned and wanted to know what the state of the cultural boycott is. In terms of the cultural boycott, the position of the African National Congress 
remains the same. And it is uncompromising. The, the thing that has been taken advantage of was a statement that the president of the ANC, Oliver Tambo, made at the annual Canon Collins Memorial Lecture in London which internationally is quoted out of context, which seemed like the ANC had changed its position. But what Tambo said was that, almost word for word, there is a new, vibrant, emergent people's culture inside South Africa, identifiable with the people, with their sentiments, with their suffering, with their aspirations with right? That there was no point at which uh, arbitrarily like some clown that there should be no cultural contact between South Africa and the world. That there is garbage that promotes the interest of the oppressor, fascist, exploiters. That, side by side with that, there is a culture that promote the interest of the majority of the people. In 1984, for instance, I went to Holland to talk to the Ministry of Culture. In 82, the Dutch cut off their cultural relations with South Africa. And that was all they did. The point here was that it is not enough. You used to spend millions every year according to that cultural accord. And it was against the people. Now we're saying there should be because historically 
We are close. I mean, even Hendrik Verboer was born in Holland. I have been to the house, I've seen the place where he was born. Right? Who made it necessary for me to be in exile today? Okay. There we said, now you have to have cultural link with the people of South Africa. How do you propose to do that? Cannot do it through Bata's Department of Culture. I hope that answers your question. Um, yeah, it, the hour is getting late, and I want to ask Willie if he would um, conclude the evening by reading a poem. Uh, there was something that was raised earlier, I'm sorry. Mm. That uh, given not only the misinformation, but a total blackout in terms of what is happening inside South Africa. Is there, at the cultural level, a way that PEN would propose, right, to work closely with that, to make that information available, at least in North America. Mm -hmm. And that, okay, I say, from our part, that is very readily feasible. Wes was threatening me here to read, <laughs> but I think I would request, hopefully, with your comradely agreement, <laughs> that each one of us read at least one short <laughs> the podium is started with poets. I mean, Kuzicile is not the first and last poet on this planet or in New York. <laughs> uh, following the uh, pattern of the Senate hearings, I'm going to give my time to Willie Colvis and Silly. <laughs> to yield in favor of Mr. Corsi Siri from Southern Alabama. I yield my time to Mr. Corsi Siri. <laughs>
<laughs> I pass. So it has been decided, Willie. Yeah. So, Mr. Cox, it's Sarah, you may continue your peroration. <laughs> okay, Ben, this is cool. <laughs> I want to register my objection. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, there are a number of uh, people in this audience who left South Africa because of the barbarism that started in Soweto in June, on June 16, 1976. Uh, three years after that, I believe, year of this Hundredth anniversary of the Battle of Isandwan, where the British forces, in terms, in spite of their military superiority, objective. Got very seriously whipped by the Africans in the Zululand area because they had more sense in terms of strategy. That it was not a question of weapons, it was a question of military strategy. So 79 was the 100th anniversary. This poem is called June 16th, Year of the Spear. They call me Freedom Child. I'm liberation bound. My name is June 16, but this is not 1976. Freedom Child, homeward bound, with an AK-47 resting easy in my arms. The rivers I cross are no longer treacherous boundaries throwing me into the frustrating arms of exile. The rivers I cross are love strings around my homeland and me, around the sun and the new day. Who does not see me will hear freedom sound roaming the rhythms of my dream roosting 
warmly palpable as breast of every mother splitting every day and night spreading freedom seed all over this land of mine my mothers fathers of my fathers kinsmen because I'm John June 16 this is not Soweto 1976. I emerge the asphalt streets of our one, and because my memory is surrounded by blood, my blood has been hammered to liberation song, and like Rebello's bullet, and Neto's sacred hope, I'm flowering over the graves of this gold fang fascist ghost all over this land of mine. I'm June 16. As Arab Ahmed says, my body is the fortress. Let the siege come. I'm the fire line, and I will besiege them, for my breast is the shelter of my people. I'm June 16. I'm Solomon Mashango. I'm the new chapter. I'm the way forward from Soweto, 1976. I am poetry flowering with an AK-47 all over this land of mine. Thank you all for coming. Um, I want to thank Jane, Wilford, Raymond, and of course Willie. Uh, there's a reception in the back for those of you who want to stay for a while and have some refreshments. Thank you again. <laughs>